Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and thanks for uh, joining us for another virtual event. And we're delighted to have our friend Reese Bowen with us again. Alas, not in person, but um, we're going to be talking about the brand new book, Proof of the Pudding, here. And Reese, I think you've sent us some uh, signed book plates, right? I believe we have them. Yeah, I did. I did send them last week. I hope you've got them. So yeah, I think they arrived. I'll have to dig around and find them, but. Um, yeah. I'll put a, a link in the comments field should you wish to purchase one of these. And uh, if you, as always, if you have questions for Reese, go ahead and type them in and Barbara will bring me back online on screen towards the end of the hour. And I would be happy to ask any questions you might have for the very <laughs> prolific Reese Bowen. <laughs> Look forward to hearing what you've got in the in the works now. Oh, yeah, right. I'm sure, you'll get into that. So anyway, well, yeah. over to you. Thank you very much. The first thing I'm going to do is drink a toast to Reese because we're actually pre-publication because the yeah. date for the proof of the pudding is actually tomorrow. So Reese, to you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I, I'm, I will not drink to you because a terrible thing you probably heard about it happened in that I had a glass beside my laptop and I said to my Zoom things, thank you so much. for and the, And it was water, luckily, but it went all over the laptop and it killed it. So um, I had to buy a new Mac. Uh, I took it into Apple and they said, there's nothing we can do. So I bought a new Mac. And then about two months later, I was going to throw the other one away and just turned it on. And lo and behold, it came on perfectly. So I've now got I've now got two Macs, his and hers. Okay, <laughs> anyway, well. <laughs> I will drink to you the moment I, I finish with this. I will drink the toast to you. And I hope, you I, hope I can do it in person very soon. I hope we can get back to Arizona soon, uh, as soon as we've done all these awful medical things. But um, Well, I hope so, too. It's difficult to, um, as we grow older, we need repairs. <laughs> I always think of myself as a car that is on its way to the body shop. And that attitude has gotten me through quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. But normally we would be having champagne with Reese, which we, we have on ice at the bookstore. Yes, well, champagne when I see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should also mention for those of you who would prefer it, we can just hold your copy of the proof of the pudding until Reese gets here and can sign the book. So um, if you'd prefer that, you can just let us know. And yeah, that should be at least within the next two weeks at the very, I mean, I'm hoping next week now because. John has a, a consultation with the doctor on Wednesday, and I have to see when they say I've got to have a knee replacement, but it won't that won't be till after the first of the year, I think. Right. Well, I hope that we'll get to see you in Arizona and John's birthday and all that yeah. good stuff. Oh, have to, yeah. But meantime, here we are. So the proof of the pudding is not a Christmas book, but in a way it could sort of be a Thanksgiving book because it's about food and it's about homecoming for the former husband, one of the many former husbands of Lady Georgie's mother, yeah. who was coming back to his home. He's down from some mountain or other somewhere, <laughs> and he's coming home. And so, you know, because it's actually his home and all the rest of it, and also Georgie's pregnant um, and sort of, you know, advancing towards birth. Um, yeah. So there's a whole kind of family gathering thing and food. So I think of this, Reese, as your Thanksgiving her royal spineless. Well, it's, yeah, it's close to it. It's so funny. One of the interviews I did was, you write an awful lot about food. Do you love to cook? And I went, no, actually, I don't I don't like to cook. I do like to eat. I'd love to have like um, Mrs. Patmore so that I could say, what do you suggest for dinner? And she'd say, well, my lady, I think we should start with the quail in aspic. You know, that would be very nice. But um, uh, no, I like to eat. I don't like to have to think ahead what I want to eat. But this is all about, you know, poor Georgie. She's come this complete cycle. She starts off with no money, having fled to uh, London on her own. And then she learns how to make a piece of toast. So she's uh, she's very proficient then in beans on toast and a cup of tea. So that's the first book. This is book 17. And by now she's acquired a husband and a very nice house. And soon we hope a baby. Um, so life is a little easier. And the one thing she's acquired or is acquiring at the beginning of this book is a chef. Um, not that she can afford a chef, but the owner of the house, Sir Hubert Anstruther, who is her godfather and she's his only heir, he expects to have good cooking. And if you've read the book before, you'll know that um, Queenie, the the hapless maid Queenie is now been the cook for some time, and she's quite good at what she, she's very good at cakes. Um, but she her cooking is strictly the sort of 
down the East End type with them. Um, bangers and mash and toad in the owl and spotty dick you know all, all those awful things that she can do um so so hubert would like a proper chef and when pierre comes uh he turns out to be absolutely marvelous and so sir hubert says oh we must have a dinner party and it goes so well everybody's really impressed that pierre is asked to cook for a big charity dinner at, at a, a creepy manor house now, this manor house has a poison garden. So chef cooking for a lot of quite well-heeled and famous people at a house with a poison garden. And in case you don't know what a poison garden is, um, every one of the plants in this garden can kill you. So Absolutely. What I know it's got Datura, it's got, you know, a foxglove, yeah. it's got all kinds of yeah. interesting stuff. Actually, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in poison gardens and poisonous plants. I've got two or three in my office, nonfiction books that I think, oh, um, oh. yeah, and I, you know, I don't know whether, I don't know whether COVID and, you know, people staying at home and gardening, although it's kind of a macabre subject if you're, you know. I'm staying at home and gardening. What can I plant that will kill everybody? <laughs> exactly. Maybe it was that kind of a deal, but no, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we're taking a look back at poisonous plants but also there's a, there's a lot of industry as the permafrost is sorry a lot of interesting try it again interest sorry I probably already had too much wine <laughs> um, as the permafrost is thawing and as the Amazon jungle is being cut down whatever there are all kinds of things being released or thawed out or whatever um, some of which are dangerous but some of which may actually have you know medicinal properties we're not yet aware of even potentially some kinds of cures um you know so i think it makes sense and in some of the plants in the poison garden reese if taken properly are, yeah. are fine for you mm -hmm. like foxglove is actually digitalis yeah. if i remember right good yeah. for your heart but if you take it in excess so you don't know about it um terrible well, I tell you where my inspiration for this poison garden came from. Uh, I'm my dear friend Louise Penny and I always meet up when we're in London together, and she always rents a flat in Chelsea. And right. she and I go around. There's a Chelsea Physic Garden, which was started by monks in way back in the 1400s, I believe, and it's wonderful. You walk around, and there's one complete area that's this is plants that can cure things for the heart and this is for the lungs and this is for the spleen you know you go around the garden mm -hmm. and then you come to and this is the poison garden so louise and i imagine we're standing there together louise is not a shrinking violet as you know she's probably quite expansive in what she says we're discussing well if you really wanted to kill someone quickly would that be better and people are creeping behind us and then running as fast as they can you know <laughs> But, I love it. Right. Well, I'm sure that somewhere in Three Pines is possible to have a poison garden. I bet there is, too. I yeah. remember. She hasn't. I, well, I'm behind in the last two books. Has she actually incorporated one into a book yet? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think she's dealt with plants that much at all. So, um, that's yeah, something. but it would sort of make it would sort of make sense in a way that you could well, have, think, yeah. um, have well, one yeah. of those little guys there and three pints. Well, anyway, so, um, you know, we know we aficionados of mystery fiction know that very often food can kill you. And um, it's not unusual that a murderer tries to disguise his crime by killing somebody in a crowd, such as, you know, I don't remember the Rex Scout title, but um, I've always liked the Neuro Wolf where the crime takes place at a banquet. Mm -hmm. and, and then and it's a very Agatha Christie structure in that only the diners, the guests at the banquet and the waiters can be um, the poisoners. I mean, yeah. there's a yeah. dead person, but, you know, access is seriously limited. Um, so it's not surprising that people try to disguise themselves in a crowd, whatever it is they're up to, by, especially with poison. Yeah, well, in, in this case, you've got the same thing. You've got the, the diners at the banquet and um, you've got the people who served them, but uh, and then some uh, several people at the banquet fall ill, um, and the um, it appears that something has been put into one of the desserts, um, mm. and um, but um, so all the suspicion falls upon poor 
poor Pierre, who is new in, in England, happens to be a professed communist. So would he like to kill off a whole lot of upper class people? And um, and of course, he made the dessert, except that Queenie, as his assistant, did actually uh, assemble part of it. But um, so the police are very anxious to arrest, uh, arrest um, Pierre on this. So that's why Georgie feels she has to defend her her chef because she's just convinced he didn't do it just by his his reaction his demeanor is not is not that of someone who actually killed somebody he he's completely terrified so um she decides she has to uh, she has to prove his innocence so um the the big question is how can you try and kill some people at the table and not others when they've all had the same dessert so, well, I'm sure you thought of a sneaky answer, <clears throat> which we will only learn if you read the book. It's so, a, it, it, for it's some a, reason, my voice is going. I can hear my puppies who are pinned up, and it's dinner time, and they have achieved this kind of incredible cry. Oh. I don't know if you can hear Scooter, but he has this kind of wail that he does. <laughs> no, so, I can't hear it. You know, distracted. <laughs> Yeah. So you you probably read about the Australian woman who has been arrested for murder um, by having a lunch in which she served um, fatal mushrooms, which is, in uh, fact, yeah. as you know, the plot of uh, one of Dorothy Sayers books, the one in which she actually got the, the poisoning wrong, as she yeah. found out later. But um, yeah. and I, I think it's interesting whether whether this woman intended to kill people or whether she was just so careless in the mushroom gathering that, you know, they died, in which case it would be, you know, manslaughter, I think, as opposed to actual murder. Mm -hmm. Well, mushrooms are so tricky. Even people who are experts have sometimes been fooled. And I, I use that actually in um, uh, uh, one of my big standalones, uh, above right. the Bay of Angels, when um, the the young female chef to Queen Victoria is accused of killing one of the members of the royal party by serving him mushrooms. And um, she claims that she didn't. And the mushrooms were bought at a stall in the market where the man gathers the mushrooms and claims, <clears throat> you know, they're all absolutely perfect. So, um, you know, it's one of those things you could easily kill someone. Mushrooms are terrible. You get a really bad one. It would shut down your liver and everything within a day, I think. So, of yeah, course I was interested to see that they are working in Britain, amazingly, on yeah. a potential treatment for anybody who happens to eat one of the death cap mushrooms. But yeah. um, up until, and if it's successful, great. But up until it might be successful, it's a death sentence to eat one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, so I think that's interesting. You introduced the thought it might be a political crime because in fact, you know, the 1930s, there was a lot of tension going on between communists, fascists. Um, it was a rough time. And um, indeed, Britain was an actual cauldron of, um, you know, political whatever it is. And people like, you know, the Mitford sisters who were raised to be upper class, were upper class, and all. a couple of them really went overboard into the fascist. One, one, yeah, one, one that was a, a, a rabid fascist and one that was a communist. So, you know, we, we, had, we had both both extremes. And yeah, one of the early books in the Royal Spinist series um, called A Royal Pain um, has to do with uh, groups, mobs in London of uh, Oswald Mosley followers. So far right fascists who used to battle communists um, and my father said a lot of people in London just liked an excuse for a good old punch up. So they weren't really. And of course, the thing is with the Brits is they're far too sensible. The, Britain could never really go to extremism, I don't think, because, you know, there'd be a punch up and everyone would say, all right, let's go and get a pint at the pub now. And everybody would say, all right, good idea. And, you know, it, the, nobody's ever been really extreme in Britain. I think that's probably why it, it never really worked when there was um, a civil war. What people took sides, but not violently took sides. No, I once did a summer at Oxford at Worcester College, and the subject was revolution. And we looked at the French Revolution, and then Mr. Pitt, he was the professor, Mr. Pitt, he was wonderful. Mr. Pitt um, asked us why, in fact, Britain had not followed suit, you know, after the French Revolution and proposed the idea that Britain had already had its revolution and had been so 
you know, unpleasant for everybody that Britain never really wanted to do that mm -hmm. again. Because, um, you know, there was a lot of violence and so forth when the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, yeah. you know, said, and, and really all during the War of the Roses, it was like a constant tribal battle. Yeah. Um, but I think, I really think after the, the British Civil War, um, that kind of put a lid on it. Mm -hmm. Well, and Oliver Cromwell was so incredibly boring that who wanted him to continue, <laughs> you know, you have someone comes into power who who bans dancing and bans everything else you'd want the king back again i think well you know they they the two jacobite you know the two Stuart catholic kings who are heirs who tried to take this round back mm -hmm. never really got any popular support in britain they got some in, in scotland um, well, that was pretty much the end of it yeah well no, the british again are very the english again are very suspicious of foreigners you know they really didn't like <laughs> They didn't like King George. They didn't like William of Orange coming in. They didn't like King George. And they've had a whole line of, of foreign kings foisted on them, which they really didn't like very much. I know. All would have gone different if, um, well, we won't go into all that. But, no. you know, I have, a, I have a theory that Henry VIII married the wrong Boleyn girl, you know, because the only legitimate son he had was with Anne Boleyn's older sister, Mary. Yeah. Yep. And there yep. was a precedent for legitimizing, you know, which the Duke of Lancaster did, which is how we got the Tudors. And I've always thought that that was so weird that he never did do that. And it would have been completely different if, you know, because then we would never have gotten the Stuarts and never gotten that whole thing. But, he did have a son with that, with Jane Seymour, but the, he he died when he was about 11. He died so. when he was very young, right. But, you know, he had that older son, Henry Hunston, who, you know, yeah. lived to be old and was... Cousin yeah. to the Queen and generally good guy, but yeah. you know, Mary. Well, that's why Philippa Gregory wrote the other Boleyn girl, you yeah. know, which is um, yeah. a really interesting book. But I've always just thought it was weird, you know, that anyone as dynastically minded as he overlooked a perfectly healthy son. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Are you allowed to legitimize someone to make them in, uh, an heir to the throne? Yeah. Well, John, John of Gaunt was able to do that with these three children with Catherine Swinford, and that's how we got the Tudors. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it could happen. Well, we digress. Anyway, let's go back to the proof of the pudding. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Georgie has spent time in Paris. She was in Paris, if I remember right, in her last adventure, last wasn't book. it? Yeah, the last book. Right. Yeah. So when hiring a cook... Is the French cook kind of like the ultimate cook? She couldn't hire like a decent British cook? Well, I think she knew she had to hire a cook and she'd been putting it off because she she hates doing that sort of thing. And then she met this young man in France and he was a waiter. And right. he said to her, I'm trained as a chef, but I can't get a job in Paris. And so, of course, Georgie immediately thinks, being Georgie and her situation, I could get him quite cheaply. I'm sure she thinks that, you know, he doesn't have a job right now. And But then the thing is, she has not checked his references, checked his cooking. He could have been an utter disaster. Um, and it could have been even worse of a disaster in that Queenie said, if you're bringing in a foreign chef, I'm quitting right now. So Georgie has to call her bluff and say, uh, all right, I'm sorry to let you go, but he's coming. And then so Queenie is about to have a great scene and quit. And then she takes one look at him and she goes, oh, we ain't half handsome, miss. <laughs> and then she decides to stay because he ain't half handsome. Uh, and so Georgie doesn't know how uh, Pierre can cook. And she doesn't really, know, as I say, she hasn't checked his background references. The fact that he's a professed communist, maybe he has come over with with in nefarious designs. She doesn't know that at all. She's still in many, I mean, she's still in her early twenties and, you know, she's still pretty naive about everything. Growing up in her Scottish castle, she hasn't had to deal with uh, the underbelly of life ever. So growing up in a Scottish castle, she's been exposed to the deplorable fig and her older brother um the duke and it seems to me that the inclusion of a french chef is going to draw fig and whatever down to Ainsley, which has got to be a lot more comfortable than castle rannoch 
<laughs> well, it seems these days, now that they know where Georgie lives, any little excuse to come down to London and then to go a little bit south of London to meet, because, you know, it's very comfortable at, at, at Ainsley compared with Castle Rannoch, where the wind howls down the corridors and, and, um, uh, and the rooms are perpetually cold and there's tartan wallpaper in the loo, you know, there's everything you don't want. Um, so they do arrive. Uh, after the chef, of course, but they arrive um, because Fig says, oh, you're about to have a baby and in your hour of need, your closest relative should be. No, the last person you'd want when you're having a baby is Fig. As you know, she is probably the most depressing person in the world and um, sees the dark side of everything, is perpetually catty, is very bossy. It, it would She'd be a nightmare, but she they do arrive. So Georgie can't say go away to them. And of course, they're very happy when they find that Pierre's there and he does give them very nice food. So what's going on with Georgie's mother, who is, you know, still in a relationship with the, the German um, mm. um, arms manufacturer? And at some point that's going to come to grief. It is. And we're getting closer and closer to the time when, uh, you know, I, I don't know what she's going to do. I think in the last book, In Peril in Paris, we... Finally, I think Georgie finally sees this could be serious. You know, this is a this is a lighthearted, fun series. Right. We're getting closer and closer to World War Two, and I have to think, you know, how would I handle that? Um, and in the last book, when they're in Paris, Georgie's mother is also in Paris. She'd come with a delegation. Max, her her um, soon to be husband. Um, mm -hmm has come to do a trade deal in in France and and she's come with a de delegation who are going to go to a showing at Chanel um including Miss, Mrs Goebbels um and um uh was it Mrs Goering well I can't remember one of the two I think and, it was Goebbels actually yeah, I'm trying yeah. to think back it was one of those G people that you yeah. seriously get confused but anyway so she meets mummy in um in a changing room at Chanel and mummy, there's mummy saying, oh, yes, I, you know, I've come. I'm going to get some clothes while I'm here. When mummy comes out of the changing room to go, uh, an older German woman appears from the next cubicle. And Georgie realizes that mummy has a minder. And that's where it gets, you know, re real to Georgie that maybe her life. Uh, but the thing is, mummy likes being in Germany because Max is very rich. He's very much in favor with the Nazis. And she has been asked, she's a famous actress. She has been asked to make some propaganda movies, which she loves because she's the star in a movie again. So, you know, Mummy is very easy to flatter. Um, and, and so Georgie sort of um, is now worrying about her mother, but there's not much she can do while uh, she's very hopeful. Um, her mother once did love this Sir Hubert Anstruther when she was married to him, but he kept on going off and climbing mountains and things. And one thing mummy loves is to be adored, as you know. She wants someone who's going to adore her nonstop. But anyway, she shows up in this book in time for the baby also. Everybody shows up in time for the baby because they think they ought to be present. You know? And so mummy shows up at the very last minute and, and Georgie hopes then that something might uh, rekindle between mummy and Sir Hubert. Um, I don't think it does, unfortunately, but um, we keep hoping. We keep hoping in a in a future book that someone might have to go and rescue Mummy. That's what I'm thinking. The uh, well, the I, I think Sir Hubert has more sense than to entangle himself with yeah. Mummy again. I mean, Mummy is what one might call a bolter. You know, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a tradition of it, of women, because divorce wasn't really all that common. But there was a history of women, you know, who simply ran away from their... Yeah. marriages and children often and responsibilities and took up with somebody else and they could be serial bolters yeah. uh, and mommy mommy is that you know that sort of person but i don't think that living quietly in ainsley is ever going to appeal to mommy there's the problem no i think i think that's true and uh but then you don't want her stuck in germany once things become too bad and she can't leave um or you know god forbid if max falls out of favor with the Nazis, you certainly don't want her there then. So yeah, but bringing Max back to Germany when the war starts, that could you know you don't want to make these books dark. You know, no, I mean, in cool. fact, are you actually planning to go into the war, or are you going to just kind of come to a stop before the war? 
I don't you haven't know. decided. I don't know what my characters are going to do. I mean, the next book, which I've I'm already in the middle of, of course, the one of the main story points in England at the time is that the the new king has to decide whether he wants to marry Mrs. Simpson or not, or whether he can marry Mrs. Simpson or not. Mm. So this is something that is going through the story in the book, maybe not the main story, but it's there. Sure. You know, well, when, we bring into Mrs. Simpson in in other books, but you're you're in 1936, so you know yes. you've got a long way to write before you get to 1939. There's plenty that can go on. Oh yeah, I can kill somebody every three months till 1939. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the great thing about historical fiction. Nobody has to age in real time; they're already all dead, you know. So it yeah, doesn't really yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah, you can kind of work your way. I think it would be very hard to write a lighthearted series during World War II. It would. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. How how can you, I mean, when you think of Hogan's Heroes on television and how tasteless that was, how incredibly tasteless that was to have people in a prison camp actually having a good time and tricking the Germans and not getting shot for it. And you know what happened in real life. You know, that's that's always really rubbed me the wrong way. And I don't, it'd be, be very hard to have Darcy as a spy or Georgie going to help him as a spy. I don't think I'd want to do that. Right. Well, you know, Louise, all series come to an end, as you know. I mean, you know, you've written Evan and you basically had retired from Molly until your daughter Claire decided that she would like to write it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it um, I mean, it's a wonderful concept. I've always thought her royal spyness. I remember how, how much fun it was when you introduced the first book, you know, it was yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful concept, but I'm not sure that it actually works in wartime. No, I don't think it does. And uh, as you say, I've got three years to have a lot of fun first. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, who knows, perhaps then I'll leave her happily with uh, her little brood of children around her at Ainsley and Darcy retiring from being a spy and raising pigs, which what is what they're doing in the next book. They're starting pigs to raise sheep. sheep. Right. I love pigs. Well, but you're writing more serious books in your Lake Union, um, you know, contract. And most yeah. of them, most of them are war stories, you know, where you get to explore all that. So what's yeah. I know that we have a new Molly with Claire coming up in March, but what's after that? Um, well, yeah, the new Molly that comes out in March is called In Sunshine or in Shadow. And you know, the good thing about writing with Claire is she is an absolute whiz at research. She reads the New York Times for every day we're going to write about. And she comes up with all these quirky little stories. And then uh, we decided to set the book in the uh, in the Catskill Mountains, in the very fledgling Jewish bungalow communities that were springing up there. Um, and you know her her neighbor, her dear neighbor Sid, is is from a uh, well-to-do Jewish family, and so we thought it'd be fun to include her family in uh, in this. And then maybe there's going to be a hotel in the future there. But Claire also found out they a newly formed state park was in the same area that we were going to use, and um and then right next to it was a bluestone mine, and they used bluestone to um, pave the streets of New York. And it was environmentally very unsound because it was open, open cut mining. And so you had oh. the blasting quarries and things. And then these miners also were felling trees to take the bluestone to the nearest railway. And among the things they're felling is one of the last groves of chestnut trees, which, as you know, were a, the, the blight killed all the chestnut trees on the East Coast. And yeah. these were some of the last ones that they've cut down. So we've got wonderful environmental things in it. And she also found there was a women's artist colony um, where women went to create any sort of art uh, and away from the judgment of men. And so, of course, Sid and Gus would love that, too. So uh, Molly has to go and experience that. So lots of fun things in the book, I think, and, uh, and uh, really eye opening into how Jews were treated, among other things. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that even if you were a distinguished Jewish family, you couldn't go to any of the normal resorts because you weren't welcome. So, you know, this is why they bundled. No, it's very true. You know, I grew up north of Chicago where there were very large Jewish communities and my family belonged, I had a very dear friend who was Jewish and her family belonged to a country club that was restricted to Gentiles, i.e. you had to be Jewish to belong to it. And we belonged to a country club that was restricted to Jews. But this was uh, before 
the whole race thing came in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the late 40s and early 50s, um, it was more a religious divide. Uh, it wasn't really until after 19, 1956 and Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation and all that you began to experience um, a lot more in terms of racial division. And uh, But when I was in high school, our high school was about a third Catholic and a third Protestant and a third Jewish. And we all had to learn, we all did learn to get along and we didn't really think about it all that much. But, um, you know, I stood up with her in her wedding at the temple. She's, she was a bridesmaid for me, you know, in church. And, um, but there weren't that many people who in the fifties really crossed. So you're talking much earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that really crossed those uh, religious boundaries. Not not they weren't racial; they were religious. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very strange. No, it was quite. It was very very strong too. I mean, we we went through the no Irish, we went through the no Italians, and now we're at the no Jews. So you know, it's. Uh, but it's interesting the way it started off with just little cabins on someone's farm, and then someone wanted to put up a little hotel, and then of course. When I was doing the research for this, I've got one of my oldest friends um, is Jewish and comes from a very distinguished family in New York. And so everything we did, we ran by her so we didn't get anything wrong. And she said, oh, well, if you're going to do something on the Catskill, she said, no, I do know Grossinger's grandson. Like, well, that would be all right. Thank you. Absolutely. Grossinger's, there turned out to be a whole comedy circuit that was known as the Borscht Circuit, if I remember correctly. And all kinds of comedians um, that uh, were very big in the mid to the late uh, 20th century got their start, you know, working um, in the, in the, uh, on the Borscht district, um, tremendous number of them. Big stars there. I mean, they had people like Bing Crosby who went there and things. Yeah. Well, yeah, in addition, but, you know, but they were, I'm trying to think I could come up with Alan Sherman, for example, yeah. Lane Bruce, not, not a great Well, I think Milton Bell got there, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. There yeah. were there were a very large number and it was a tough audience. In mm-hmm. fact, what is it that Mrs. Maisel, the TV series? Um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She's yeah. there in one of those hotels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it was um, a whole, you know, we don't really think of, but but we have stand up today. It's just different, you know, and a lot of it is digital, but people used to go for, I remember when Alan Sherman came to Highland Park near us and absolutely sold out, you know, <laughs> under a tent and he had those hilarious songs that he would sing oh, that we all loved. I used yeah. to love those, yeah, they were great. They were great indeed. Well, um, yeah. so I meant to mention to you, I'll do it right now, that I think your publication date is the same weekend as the Tucson Festival of Books. So oh, okay. we need, we'll need to figure out what you yeah. and Claire yeah. want to do. Right. Yeah. We'll get yeah. there. Yeah. And so what's happening, what's happening with your um, books for Lake Union? Um, well, the next one is already finished and in, and um, as I think quite dark, but um, a little bit later, takes place mainly in the 1960s, um, beginning of the hippie movement. And it starts with a young, a little girl who's totally vanished from playing in the middle of one of those London squares. She was being watched over by her nanny. And then the nanny looks up and she's gone. Um, But the, but the, the gate is shut and everything and she's just vanished. So it's a big thing in the newspapers. All the headlines say, have you seen little Lucy? And so the heroine is uh, a newspaper reporter with the Daily Express who has got into serious trouble when she thought she'd got a scoop and she was following a politician and found that he was visiting um, a call girl who also had ties to Russians. Um, so she thinks she's got this great scoop and the politician turns out to be a really good buddy of the owner of the owner of the newspaper. So so she's put onto obituaries instead. So she really wants to make herself back. Um, And she gets a chance when her her flatmate, her dear, she's been a dear friend since school, is now a policewoman and um, uh, is being sent to the South Coast because a child that looks very much like Lucy has been seen driving, looking out of the back window of a car with a worried expression. So... um, the heroine Liz decides she's going to come down there too, just by chance, and maybe get in on the uh, get in on the uh, investigation. So she does go down there, and um, 
uh, happens to bump into them at a hotel, etc. And uh, of course, they go off and do their investigating. But then there's one place uh, that they hear about that's one of these abandoned villages. You know how in World War II, the government took over some villages on the coast um, so they could practice invasions. Um, and the, the inhabitants were given just a couple of weeks to pack up their belongings and get out. So this is one of these villages, and it's based on a real one. Um, and so they, they, some a, a car was seen driving in towards this village, which is strange because it's it's still army property; it's still off. So they go to this village, and and um, the the DI in charge of this is is rather he's very um, uh, misogynistic, and he's also very lazy. So he says he doesn't want to climb over the gatepost and walk half a half a mile. So he lets Liz go with with her, the other the policewoman. And they go into the village and it's just all destroyed, completely destroyed village. And obviously there's nobody there. But Liz stands in the middle of the main street and she says, I've been here before. And they say, you can't have. It was um, 1943. It was it was uh, everybody was turned out and then it was government property. And then they practiced the invasion. You would only have been two at the most. And and she says. Then she stops and she goes, there was a pub, it was called the Big Boat. And uh, so her um, there's a, an army corporal with them too, and her friend, they both sort of almost laugh about this. And then they see lying in the grass, a very old pub sign. And it shows this ship in full sail and it's called the Golden Hind. Mm. And um, so the question is, how has she been there before? And, you know, she looks into this and then it's tied into three little girls during World War Two who were put on a train in London to be evacuated and never found again. So you've got the missing child in the present and you've got the three little girls in the past and the heroine's own story who all tie in together. So kind of fun to write. Yes, I can certainly see that. What is it about World War II that pulls you so? Because most of your most of your standalones, maybe, yeah, I'm focused upon war stories. Yeah, I think to start with the very first one called In Farley Field. Um, I was very keen uh, when after the war there were lots of books about World War II, and they were all stories featuring men. Aren't I a wonderful hero? I flew this plane. Aren't I a wonderful hero? I had this PT boat. I escaped from Colditz. And nobody said at that time, women have been heroes too. Um, so I thought it was very important to write books in which women were not in the background knitting. Women were the, were the brave ones. And so uh, the first book in, that I did in World War II, we, the heroine there works at Bletchley Park. And um, uh, and it's because of, of of what she does there that she's able to foil a plot to to kill a major a major character in England. So you know that that was the first one. So the other books I've um, I've I've tied in the role different roles of women, and I think yeah. you know the last one that came out, the Paris Assignment, was obviously the most harrowing to write and the most um, uh, most focusing on women's incredible bravery because. The heroine becomes one of the young women who has dropped into occupied France and becomes a courier. And these young women, their training was really brutal. And we learn about that in the book. And also they knew their, their chance of survival was about um, 25 percent. And yet they did it anyway. And um, so writing that and knowing what she was going to have to go through and what the other girls were going to have to get was really horrible for me to write. I hate making my characters suffer, but, you know, I once I started it, I couldn't say, oh, the, you know, then she had a lovely time and then she escaped. No, no, she didn't, you know. Now, actually, what's interesting is you wind it all up in Australia, mm -hmm. um, which is the place that you have lived. And, um, yeah. you know, and that that's territory that you hadn't explored before. So, you know, that was really very nice. That book came out in August, if I remember last August. I'm disappearing because the light here is failing and I, I'm getting darker and darker. <laughs> so God, I'm still here. So maybe we should call Patrick up and um, let yeah. him see if we have questions and comments from the audience. Yeah. Let's see. Um, yes, we do. 
Let's see here. There we go. I'll flash myself. Maybe that'll help. Let me see if there are any actual questions. Um, there are some people that are expressing their sympathy about your about your knee. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Let's see what else we have here. Uh, Robin says, Barbara, your vintage car analogy is perfect. Um, Let's see. Oh, yeah, right. But, you know, it's the only way to look at it is that you just have to, you know, think of it as going in for repairs on a frequent basis. Yep. <laughs> maintenance. Yeah. Yeah, my dad just had a, a melanoma on his face today. He went in and got removed. Oh, God. I yeah. know. A little scary. Yeah. Um. Joe, I mean, you've answered this, but uh, Joyce would like to know, is Georgie's mother in this book? How is she doing in Germany? You kind of talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Joyce, she, and hi, Joyce. I'm sorry I didn't get to see you in person. Um, I saw you at VoucherCon. Um, yeah, she, she she does appear at some stage in the book, um, uh, maybe just in time, won't say anything more. There's always the inevitable question about about uh, Evans. Um, for a long time, you said you said never say never. But uh, any any thoughts of bringing Evans back at this point? If if the story if the book if the series gets picked up for British TV, I would think about bringing him back. Yeah, you know it, it's still um, a, the the TV writer who did Doc Martin still is. Um, uh, working with that in England. We have um, a production company actually that's set in Wales um, that are very interested in doing it. And they've turned in a sample script to the BBC. So it's, um, you know, it's moving ahead little by little. As you know, these days with any TV, it's all a question of funding. You have to get so many different entities coming on board before you can afford to fund it. But, um, you know, the Welsh, the Welsh Film Board is very generous and, um, you know, I'm I'm vaguely optimistic, and um, this guy is also in the process of of forming his own film company with mm. with the writer of of um, uh, uh, of the midwife, which would be nice. Um, oh, called the midwife. Yeah, call the midwife. Yes, oh. and um, uh, and if they do that, I think they're very interested in the Royal Spinus series. So uh, hmm. there's. There's lots of good things. You know, as you know, with all these um, options, you get the option and you think, oh, that's lovely. And they give you some money. And then, you know, about a year later or two years later, it disappears again. And um, uh, some get closer than others. And, and you take all of them with a pinch. I've had, I think I've had almost everything optioned at one stage. And you say, right. oh, thank you. this is very nice. And then if I ever turn on my TV and see it, I'll believe it. But until then, you don't. <laughs> You know, you're right. It's there's so many things that have to go into it. You have to interest. Um, you almost always have to interest some kind of a star. You have to get funding. You know, you have to have a decent script. You have to catch it at the moment. You yeah. know, the least little thing in the in the universe can derail um, yeah. a project yeah. if if it looks as though it's going to cross, you know, some kind of social boundary at the moment or something. So yeah, I think it's really about timing more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, I mean, her Royal Spinus, the first one was purchased for a motion picture as opposed to a TV mm -hmm. thing. And I did get quite a lot of money from it. Uh, but um, and they tried three different scripts, none of which they liked. And then the person who's who was behind it, who, you know, whose enthusiasm was behind it, moved to another company. So that was that. But it came quite close. So uh, and they did pay me, so I can't complain about that. That's great. But I think I think it'd be much more interesting as a series than as a movie. Oh yeah, much more. I mean, it, it's absolutely made for a TV series. I think you know, there's so many yeah. of the books would be real fun and you know, great locations and things. Um, I keep they keep asking me who would you like to be Lady Georgie, and of course it, we've gone on now for like eighteen years, and so right. to start with. Um, I, you know, I, I, Lily James would have been lovely, and um, and then Emma Watson would have been lovely, and we, you know, they keep getting too old, so we'll have to find someone new to to be Georgie. Do you have any interest in writing a contemporary set story? Um, yes, yes, I do. Um, the thing with writing a contemporary mystery always to me is there's so much um, 
CSI at your fingertips now that it loses the it loses the interest uh, of, of a, a detective literally using their own skills and using their own uh, intuition to get something done. That's why I like writing Molly, because she has to, um, you know, she has to rely on her own wits to solve anything. Um, and and also there are so many more interesting motives in the past too. you know, all the, the things like, you know, I love another, but I'm not free and I'm the heir to the fortune. All those have gone now. Yeah. Even shame is gone now. You know, it used to be that, you know, protecting one's reputation and yeah. avoiding shame were very powerful reasons. And now, yeah. you know, yeah. there doesn't appear to be any. So that's gone away as a compelling yeah. motive. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's You've both been watching the uh, the uh, Poirot series with um, Kenneth Branagh as Poirot. I've seen some of it. Um, I want to see the movie, the new one, which I haven't done yet because I think it's yeah. only movie theaters. I didn't oh, know. Really? Didn't know there was a series. I saw Kenneth Branagh on the on the Orient Express, which I really didn't like that much. Um, and I, I haunting was, and there's something in Venice. The haunting, a haunting in Venice. It's a movie. Yeah. I think. It's a movie? I okay. Think I don't think it's television. It's I think it's a, no, movie. it's a movie. And it's it's based on um, uh, Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it because I love Venice, and so that exactly. Be, I figure if nothing else, the scenery yeah. will be yeah. will be great. Yeah, I don't like him as Poirot. He's a bit too blustery. And, um, you know, Suchet is so perfect because he has these horrible little fastidious manners. And you can just, you know, he's absolutely Poirot. He is. He toddles along, you know, sort yeah. of like a penguin. And yeah. um, we watched one by accident the other night. We watched the first Poirot. I don't remember. We were poking around on Acorn or Britbox or something. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden there was Poirot in his very first you know, he and Hastings together. And was that Styles or what? A mysterious affair at Styles? No, it was um, about a uh, missing cook from um, a suburb. I'm trying to remember what it's called. But oh, anyway, the cook, yeah. the cook is missing. Oh, so it was one of the short stories they made into. I think so. Yeah. yeah. yeah and we watched a lot of those. They're, some of them are better than others. She's. Christy is much better when she deals with domestic affairs and much worse when she deals with international spies and things. Yeah, you know, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. she was very, that's why the Miss Marples in general are, yeah. I like them a lot because they're, you know, they're focused in on, on oh. the murder of the vicarage is my favorite, Christy. It always has been. It's the funniest one by far. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the, the vicar and the wife are quite delightful, aren't they? They're just mm -hmm. a, a nice couple in everything. So Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a real cozy. Um, yeah. You know, she has, you know, many flashy pots and many, you know, and then there were none or the murder of Roger Ackroyd or whatever, you know, some really amazing plot. But I've always just thought Murder at the Vicarage was a, was yeah. a pleasant book to read. So, yeah. Patrick, is there anything else? Yeah, uh, let's see. Holly... Holly asks, she says, I love Darcy's wacky aunt and uncle. Will they make an appearance again? Yes, that's good. Yeah, we haven't had we haven't had his father either. No, the wacky aunt and uncle, they were fun. Um, perhaps Queenie will eventually go back to them, except everybody loves Queenie. They don't want her to go. So um no, perhaps we will bring them over sometime. That's a very good suggestion because they they were a fun couple, weren't they? Yes. Mm -hmm. And and, and maybe a good last question is, is there a special book of yours that you'd like to see on TV the most? Oh, God, um, that's a really hard question. Um, when you're talking TV and not movies, I mean, if we're talking movies, I'd love to see The Tuscan Child or The Venice Sketchbook. I think would both be lovely movies. Um, Venice Sketchbook is optioned at the moment, so who knows? Um, on TV, though... Um, I think I'd like to see one of the Evans. I think because I know that part of Wales so well, I think that would be lovely to see it because I'd be watching it going, oh, I've had a cup of tea in that place. You know, <laughs> I'd enjoy that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, we, can, we can hope. What, Patrick? I was just going to say, where did you leave off with Evans as far as what what year was it roughly? Oh, God, um, probably about... 2006 i believe 2006 2007 but, but i um, mean what oh, the, you mean in his it, life yeah um, uh well we haven't got he hasn't i don't think did he ever get um a, a mobile phone he might have done in the last ones what they will do if we do the tv series what they're going to do is to move it further back in time so that he uh 
you know, it, it becomes historical. I mean, I hate to warn you, Barbara, but 1960s and 70s is historical now. I know, I know. Laurie's yeah. back to the garden. Laurie King's back to the garden. I, I chose it as a historical mystery because I realized it's been 50 years, you know, since the yeah. 1970s, and that makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. I agree. I think that Evan would do very well if it were said in the 60s. Yeah, or even if it even if it was set in the eighties, because if you deal with a time before you've got uh, mobile phones, etc., he still has to rush and find the nearest phone box. And also during right. the eighties, you had all of this upheaval with um, Welsh nationalists before the assembly was was formed. So you had people burning down cottages and things. Sure. So that make, would make it very interesting. I think so too. I mean, all creatures, great and small, has done very well on Masterpiece Theater. And although it's the late thirties, yeah. um, yeah. you know, you couldn't really, you yeah. couldn't really tell those stories in a more modern setting oh. at all. So and I think yeah. the other ones they are pretty timeless. I mean, they're they are sort of like Christie stories. They're they're involved with um, domestic type things as opposed to international type things. Village things, yeah. Village. Yeah. Yeah, 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 village things. So yeah, it makes perfectly good sense. Well, I certainly hope that we'll get to see you quite soon. Oh, Thank you very much for spending yeah. an hour with us. Thank you all for joining us. Um, there it is, the yeah. proof of the pudding. Hold mine up too. Right, and you know, yeah. since I'll wait for um, an update from Reese, we do have the signed book plates, but if she is going to turn up in a week or so, I think we'll just hold your books for a few more days and yeah. see whether she's going to be here because it's nicer to have an autograph book if we can do that yeah i should be able to tell you by the end of the week when we're, when we're coming okay. that'll be great wonderful well meantime thank you very much and um good evening everybody patrick and i'll see you see you both soon bye bye-bye bye hello we hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors we'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.